So actually, uh, today, this afternoon, um, I want to talk about the uh, total center of the teachings of the Buddha. And I think I can give the essence of the wisdom teachings of the Buddha in, you know, 30 or 40 minutes. And it really represents the center of 2,600 years of tradition. Despite all the complexities, all the different teachings, this is the center of the wisdom teaching. I think there are also other teachings that are crucial about uh, the development of compassion and the kind heart and the nature of Nibbana and what we might call the sacred, not, not Buddhist language. We could point to that, but uh, what the Buddha mostly talked about in his own teachings is what we'll look at and get right at the center of it, and we can talk about it, I'll, I'll, try, I'll maintain, very simply. And this can really guide our practice and know that when we're working with this teaching, you know, which I mentioned in the, was on the website, of uh, the teaching of the nature of dukkha and the end of dukkha. That's right at the center. So that's what I want to explore and do so in a way that this week I primarily give the teaching and talk about some ways of practicing with the teaching that can be a guide for the next two weeks. And then in two weeks, we'll come together and compare notes about what we've explored. And I'll give more depth about how to, how to practice with this teaching, which is the practicing, um, I would say, with uh, the nature of reactivity, okay? And so, I'll explore this and mention when we can look at the handout that those of you in person have, and they'll also give cues to Susan to do some screen share uh, for the same material that's on the handouts that people have in person, who are here in person. So the Buddha said, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. So what does that mean? And some of that sometimes comes through the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which most of us are familiar with in different ways. And, but how, what, is, what is dukkha? And what does the end of dukkha mean? The most common translation of dukkha is of, is of dukkha as suffering in English. So what does that mean? You, you know, I know uh, I was somewhat consoled by hearing that the, that the third noble truth and really the aim of the teaching is the end of suffering. But what does that mean? Does it mean the end of pain? No. Now the Buddha in his later life actually had headaches and he had back pain, not surprisingly, for someone who was approaching 80. 
So what I want to maintain is that one of the reasons for some confusion, I believe, about this most central teaching is that there are multiple meanings of dukkha that are there in the discourses of the Buddha. And the Buddha never had an editor <laughs> who said, hey, Mr. Buddha, there are multiple meanings of dukkha. Could you consolidate all this and get into shape? And no one, to the best of our knowledge, ever said that. And so I believe it's left us with a certain amount of confusion about not only the nature of dukkha, but really what the aim is of the entire practice. The end of suffering sounds good, right? How many people signed up for the end of suffering at some point, right? That sounds good, but it's not clear what suffering means. In English, it typically is fairly synonymous with pain. You know, sometimes it could mean other kinds of difficulties. So what I want to do is suggest that in the teachings of the Buddha, there are at least four different meanings of dukkha. And the first three of them, which are the most common, do not help us make sense of what the end of dukkha means. That's the purpose of the practice. The end of dukkha, both as in the uh, Four Noble Truths, the Third Noble Truth, and in some other teachings. And so what I want to do first is outline briefly these four understandings of dukkha and show how only the last one of them gives us a good sense of what the end of dukkha means. And then I want to look at uh, some further understandings of what dukkha means and then some ways to practice with, with dukkha. Okay, so, and the preview is that, that I'll say that there's a fourth meaning of dukkha as reactivity, which I'll explicate. And that's going to be the most fundamental meaning of dukkha. Uh, and when we have that as a meaning of dukkha, then the end of dukkha does make sense. But without that, it doesn't make sense so well. So the first meaning of dukkha is the most common. This um, sometimes was called, sometimes the Buddha talked about three understandings of dukkha, which are the first three that I've listed in the handout. And maybe we can put up on the screen share now, uh, slide number one, uh, Susan. Got it. So the first meaning of dukkha that's the most common is dukkha as the unpleasant. Dukkha as the unpleasant and the painful. In Indian culture, dukkha was a term that was sometimes understood as being related to the 
axle of a wheel cart when it was off center, thereby giving a bumpy ride. <laughs> so the first meaning of dukkha is having a bumpy ride. It means the, what's painful, what's unpleasant, and this is the most common usage. This is when, you know, you probably know passages or have heard, um, you know, teachers talk about dukkha, and this is where dukkha, uh, the Buddha says, what is dukkha? Dukkha is illness. Dukkha is pain. Dukkha is old age. Dukkha is death. This is dukkha as the unpleasant. Okay? And it's, again, the most common everyday word in the languages of Pali and Sanskrit that uh, uh, the Buddha used when he was talking about dukkha. He sometimes calls this dukkha dukkha. <laughs> double, double dukkha, right? That's what, that's what he, that's what he talks about. Um, and it's simply having unpleasant experiences. But then, as we'll do with each of the meanings of dukkha, we can ask the question: Does this help us make sense of the end of dukkha? Because presumably, awakening is about the end of dukkha. But does that first meaning of dukkha ever end? No. Unpleasant experiences, as in my examples of the Buddha's headaches, keep on happening even when there's full awakening. There can be unpleasant experiences. That's not the mark of awakening. It's not the mark of the end of dukkha. That is significant, because that doesn't end. And we'll see, similarly, for the second and third meanings of dukkha. You know, the second meaning of dukkha, viparanama dukkha, is the dukkha of change. And this means essentially that that which is unpleasant because of impermanence will at some point, uh, or I should say that which is pleasant, at some point will become unpleasant. And the Buddha said that's a source of dukkha. In other words, that the pleasant doesn't last because of impermanence. That is one of the other ways the Buddha talked about dukkha. And we can ask again, does that help us make sense of what the end of dukkha might mean? What awakening might mean? And the answer is no. That's going to, that, that quality of impermanence and the pleasant sometimes changing to the unpleasant or always changing eventually is a feature of life. You know, and so it doesn't help us make sense of what the end of dukkha is unless we have the sense of the end of dukkha, meaning that we are no longer reborn and we totally have transcended the round of rebirth. That, that could make sense of that, but, uh, but presumably the Buddha, still alive, had reached the end of dukkha, right? And so this doesn't help us make sense of it either. The third meaning, I would say similarly, and you may have heard teachers say that the core meaning of dukkha is of dukkha as based on the fact that nothing of a phenomenal nature 
will bring lasting happiness. Nothing, no sight, no taste, no smell, no idea, no experience will help us will help us get to know the end of dukkha. Will help us really get to know freedom. And again, we can ask, does that end? Even though that can give us hints as to what the end of dukkha is, the end of dukkha is when we don't look for phenomenal experience to give us lasting happiness, right? So that gives a hint, but strictly speaking in itself, if that's a form of dukkha, that never ends. That just is the nature of the way things are. So we're 0 for 3. <laughs> we're 0 for 3 so far. These first three meanings of dukkha don't help us make sense of the end of dukkha. They don't give us, you know, at least in a direct way, an understanding of the depths of these wisdom teachings. I'm going to say that there's a fourth teaching which does. And this is the teaching that is expressed, is articulated, I would say, in several of the Buddhist teachings. I'll give two of them. The first one is the teaching of the uh, two arrows, which I think was a favorite teaching of mine when I was teaching regularly in Benicia. Because it really struck me when I first heard it, probably 20 plus years ago, I think I heard it first from Gil Fronsdell, who was one of my mentors as I was coming into teaching. And I heard it and something just was electrifying about it. I think it gives us a sense of what the core of the teaching is. And you may remember the teaching of the two arrows, it's very simple. It goes like this. The Buddha was talking with practitioners and asked them a question. He said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. What differentiates a non-practitioner from a mature practitioner? They didn't answer his question, so he answered it himself, which was the common occurrence with the Buddha. He was asking questions and answering them himself. And so he said that having an unpleasant experience, and in the text, it's a very short text, just like three pages. It's sometimes translated as the, uh, the two darts, sometimes translated as the two arrows. And he said that having an unpleasant experience is like being shot by an arrow. He called it the first arrow. And he was mostly in the text talking about unpleasant physical experiences, but we could also think of it more generally as we experience the first arrow when we have any kind of unpleasant experience. An unpleasant thought, an unpleasant emotion, something that I find unpleasant from an interaction, from something happening socially, etc. This is like being shot by the first arrow. The Buddha said everyone at times is shot by the first arrow. In terms of the first arrow, there's no difference between a non-practitioner and a mature practitioner. 
where there's a difference is in what happens after one is shot by the first arrow. He said that a non-practitioner, which also means us when we're not practicing, okay, just to be clear. <laughs> okay. He said a non-practitioner will tend to shoot a second arrow, I would say at oneself or at others, as if that would help get rid of the first arrow. And the mature practitioner learns not to do this. So what does shooting the second arrow look like? It could mean in terms of physical experiences, it could mean reacting and contracting around the unpleasant physical sensation. Very, very common. For example, uh, the first application in the medical field of mindfulness was with John Kabat-Zinn, bringing mindfulness to people with uh, some forms of chronic pain. And he found that we might say that with people with some forms of chronic pain, the first arrow is 20% of the pain. The second arrow is as much as 80%. You know, the tensing around the pain, contracting. Not all forms of chronic pain, but some. And he found, of course, that if he could teach people <clears throat> to react less with the pain and go, you still have the 20%, but there can be a major reduction in what people experience as pain. So that would, be, <clears throat> that would be one example of shooting the second arrow. You know, when we contract around physical pain, you know, very obvious also, I have something difficult happen to me. Maybe I blame myself, I blame others. I think about it continually. I have negative thoughts about myself or others. That's the second arrow. Blaming, judging, those are all second arrow phenomena. Someone says something to me I don't like in an interaction. Sometimes automatically I'll say something back negative, right? Just bam, bam. That's the second arrow, right? You know, and takes all sorts of forms, happen on the level of emotions, the body, thoughts. And it happens socially. A large number of social conflicts are people or groups of people shooting second arrows at each other. A lot of conflicts are like that, maybe most. We have received pain, we will inflict pain on you. It's a second arrow. So you can see that it's a crucial teaching, learning how not to shoot the second arrow, right? And I would say that learning not to shoot the second arrow does give us guidance about what the end of dukkha means. That it points to um, not shooting the second arrow. And I would say we could call this non-reactivity. And I'll explicate a little in a moment, a little further what I mean by that. But I would say that shooting the first arrow could be called um, reactivity, or I'm sorry, Shooting the first arrow is just what we're given. Shooting the second arrow is reactivity. You know, 
The first hour is just given, it happens. I have unpleasant experiences. I don't ask for them. Not, you know, it's kind of outside of my volition. Shooting the second arrow, that is reactivity. That's what we can end. That's getting at the meaning of the end of dukkha. Okay? A teaching which helps explicate this a little bit further is the next teaching on the handout. And we can go to slide number two. This is the teaching of dependent arising or dependent origination which was the teaching that the Buddha came to on the night of his awakening, as many of you know. And this is a very basic teaching. I'm not going to go over the whole teaching. This is the teaching of 12 links, basically, that lead to dukkha, her suffering. And the first part of it is what we bring to experience. The second part, and that, that has four of the 12 factors, the second set are four factors of what happens in experience. That's what I'll focus on. And then the third set are four factors of what happens after experience. A short version of this is basically we bring to experience a certain level of uh, habitual behavior and ignorance. We are not fully awake. I'm sorry to break the nose. <laughs> But we bring to experience certain habits, a certain level of ignorance, also certain understanding, certain clarity, and so forth. And then um, the last four are what happens uh, based on one's experience. And what we'll look at is, this, is the middle set of four factors. This is basically whether we, whether we actually keep on with our habits and when we simply are in habitual mode, we keep things going. So that we're, and this we could say is shooting the second arrow. So I'll go into more depth on this. And again, we can look at the slide and the handout. It's a pretty simple model. Four steps. With every experience, there's a moment of contact with what would be called a sense object. In other words, there's a contact through one or more of the senses with a particular experience. We see something, we hear something, we smell something, we feel something at the level of sensation. And the Buddha, um, the Buddha psychology also said one of the senses is thinking. So we might say we think something. That's happening, okay? That, in a way, is a given. On the basis of that contact with a sense object, also, pretty much given is that every moment of sense experience has a quality of being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. This is called uh, Vedana, for those of you who know uh, that teaching. It's also what we focus on in the second foundation of mindfulness. And the Buddha uh, said that this is fairly this is fairly neutral. The, you know, the feeling tone is just happening. You know, it could be influenced by past experiences, but the fact that I have an unpleasant sensation in my shoulder, not something I asked for, not something I necessarily made happen. It's a little more complex than that, but for our purposes, we can say that this is, in a way, a given, okay? I have a pleasant thought, it just happens, okay? 
Um, I taste something, it's pleasant or it's unpleasant. You know, it's, you know, I had one of those muffins, pleasant, you know, <laughs> you know uh, and so forth. Um, sorry for those online, there were, there were muffins available if you came in person and tea and very nice, very nice. And so that's a given. So far, we're not really in the realm of practice. We're just seeing more clearly what's given in experience. Practice comes in with the third and fourth uh, steps in the sequence. When we're not mindful and when there's a backlog of habits and ignorance, we will tend with what's pleasant to first want it and then grasp after it. Again, can happen at the level of thought or body or emotions. And often this happens virtually automatically. I have a piece of that candy in there. I like it. I reach for a second one instantly, right? Okay. And, uh, and so similarly with the unpleasant experiences, I will tend when I'm not mindful, not aware, and I have habits and background ignorance, I will tend with unpleasant experiences to not want them to be there and then to in some way push away. That can happen uh, in a hundred different ways. I can, as I mentioned, I can push away, and I'll call this reactivity, I can push away at the level of thoughts, I can blame, I can judge, I can push away at the level of the body, I can push away at the level of emotions and so forth. And so, again, often this happens virtually automatically. You know, I have contact with something and bam, bam, I'm in pushing away, blaming, judging, or I'm in grasping and so forth. And then it's said with neutral experiences, I tend just not to be aware. I tend to maybe space out. I'm just not tracking them. For most of us, most of what we experience is probably more in the neutral realm. You know, it may be that, you know, only one or two percent of our experiences are either uh, pleasant or unpleasant, but of course, those are the ones that draw us, right? And so, again, this can happen very automatically, but what we do with our mindfulness is that we start to look at pleasant and unpleasant, and we start to be able to notice tendencies to move towards wanting and grasping on the one hand or not wanting and pushing away on the other. Again, through thoughts, through blaming, judging, physical reaction, all sorts of things. And the um, nature of our practice is that when we actually try to be mindful of this, we can actually intervene with the cycle and not go from pleasant to grasping. Not go from uh, unpleasant to pushing away in a habitual, reactive, uh, automatic way. I'm going to call the grasping and the pushing away the two forms of reactivity. And I'm going to say that what the Buddha is teaching through this teaching is that the end of dukkha is the end of reactivity. We can understand it through the teaching of the two arrows. We can understand it through this teaching. 
that I no longer am caught in habitual, often automatic tendencies just to be uh, caught in reactivity with the pleasant and unpleasant. One important qualification. This doesn't mean that we don't choose to go for the second muffin. <laughs> I want to reassure you right away. <laughs> okay. This doesn't mean that we don't go for the pleasant or try to avoid or respond to the unpleasant, right? But what it means is that I try to do so without reactivity, without the grasping or pushing away. It's an interesting practice. I can go for seconds of the chocolate, but I do so with some mindfulness, maybe. Or kind of another obvious example, let's say that I notice something that's not right. Let's say I notice an injustice, right? In a way that's unpleasant. And I can be very reactive about injustice. I can go into a lot of reactivity. This is the occupational hazard of activists or anyone concerned about injustice. I've done workshops with activists on, on these issues, right? It's a very common issue or problem with people concerned about injustice. Can get self-righteous, dogmatic. That's because they're caught in reactivity. So it's a profound practice for anyone concerned with what's unethical, unjust, to do this practice to transform reactivity, right? So it's a very important uh, qualification. Another way to say this is that when we notice our reactivity, it often is mixed with something that has some validity and it makes it tricky. You know, being judgmental, very clear example. I'm judgmental about my, my friend not keeping an agreement, right? It's unpleasant, I'm, you know, I get into reactivity, I blame and judge my friend, and yet there's something valid, we might say, in what I've noticed. So, transform, we, so I talk about transforming reactivity rather than just squashing it. Because what we want to do is preserve the insight that's often there in, in, with reactivity. You know, as in my example, where the insight might be, you know, that muffin was very good, I'd like to have a second one, and I can ask, you know, is this a problem? <laughs> and maybe I get the answer, no. Okay, but I, but I brought a little bit of mindfulness to it. Maybe a more obvious example with the injustice, right? That, you know, I can, uh, do my inner work with my own reactivity about the injustice, and this helps me to avoid the pitfalls of being dogmatic, self-righteous, attacking my enemies. When I've done work with uh, people in workshops, sort of spiritually-minded activists, they say the greatest problem in our organizations is people criticizing each other, getting on each other, right? And so, the practice would be to work with the reactivity and transform it 
um, to preserve the insight about what was you know, my friend who didn't keep the agreement. I don't want to squash that or forget it. I don't want to squash the uh, sense of injustice in the name of being calm or peaceful or a good practitioner. Rather, I would say that the core of this teaching about the end of dukkha is to identify reactivity and learn to work with it to transform reactivity, not simply to squash it. We don't end reactivity by squashing it because then we lose what's very commonly there, which is the insight. Although some of our forms of reactivity might be pretty close to straight out grasping. <laughs> I want to acknowledge that. Some of them might look, look that. There might not be a whole lot of insight with some forms of grasping or pushing away, right? But, you know, in my work with transforming the judgmental mind, there is typically. With our, our being judgmental or blaming, it's typically not just simply made up. There's simply, usually something there and it gets mixed with the reactivity. So I'm going to say that at the heart of the whole teaching is, and we can let go of the slides now, um, is this teaching of um, looking for reactivity. And you know, the other quotation I have on the handout is that, I'll be very brief here, is that reactivity can also be institutionalized. You know, I have this quote from David Loy where he talks about how you know, greed could be institutionalized in maybe the economic system, right? You know, I remember reading during a, uh, a downturn in the stock market, they interviewed a, a trader on uh, Wall Street, and he said, around here, there are two kinds of cycles. There's the greed cycle and the fear cycle. We're in a fear cycle now, <laughs> right? And so there, you know, greed can be, greed is a form, you know, sometimes we use a shorthand for the grasping. Um, uh, although the grasping is, is probably, could be understood more broadly. And similarly, the, the uh, being judgmental, the negativity, that gets institutionalized, you know, in, you know, probably racism could be an example of that. It gets institutionalized. So we want to think about reactivity in this broad way. And so how to practice with reactivity? I'll just take the last five minutes or so uh, talking about some ways to practice with reactivity. And on the, um, on the handout, I gave you 10 ways, which I don't think I'm gonna, I don't think I'm gonna get through, but I'll, I'll just, um, I'll mention a few of these. And this can give us a sense of, hopefully, how to practice in the next two weeks. So the first one I give on this, and, and I, think, I think, don't think, Susan, we need to do the slide, because I think just talking about it is probably enough. But then, again, people online who want to get the handout, make sure that Susan has your, your email address, and you can put that in the chat. <clears throat> and so the first is we cultivate different forms of non-reactivity that we need that to be able to study reactivity, mindfulness being a primary capacity. You know, mindfulness is by its nature, we could say non-reactive. It's non-reactive presence with what's happening in experience. 
So we want to cultivate mindfulness with our practice. This makes it possible to explore and transform reactivity. The heart practices, loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness, and so forth, are really important too because a lot of our going into reactivity, particularly of in relationship to the unpleasant, is actually going into territory that can be painful sometimes. Right? I found this in working with the judgmental mind that when we go into our, especially our negative judgments, we go in more deeply, it's going into what's painful. And that often what we do with our practice is actually we trace back the reactivity using that model of dependent origination. We trace it back to the pain that triggered it. And that can be very interesting, something even you can ask in your practice. I'm feeling reactivity. What's the pain that triggered it? Can I feel that? Yeah. And there are different ways to practice with that. You know, um, you know, someone did something, let's say again, didn't keep that agreement. I'm judgmental. Okay, let me just, Donald, let me just feel, let me just feel around my body and my heart. What's there for me? Oh, it's kind of anger, some sadness, right? And so some of the practice with reactivity is going into what's painful. So it's very helpful to, to bring in compassion practice and loving kindness practice. It gives us a kind of balance as we do that. Work with the wisdom teachings, like the teachings about dukkha, uh, and then I mentioned other speech practice, skillful work with conflict, nonviolence. I would interpret the teachings by Gandhi and Dr. King on nonviolence as completely or um, virtually identical to the teachings of the Buddha on ending dukkha. We have received pain. We will not inflict pain on the other. They're very, very close. I've, I've done retreats sometimes where we looked at nonviolence and Buddhist practice, and they coincide. I would interpret nonviolence as a social teaching about the end of dukkha, the end of reactivity. It's really very, very close. You know, different language, and you know, Dr. King would use the language of love and meeting pain with love, but when you look closely, it's very, very similar. And a second way is working with the Four Noble Truths, you know, to be with what's painful, notice if there's reactivity, can I come to non-reactivity, what helps me to do so, that, that's one way of working. What I'll invite, especially for the next time, study your main forms of reactivity. Every person develop your top five or your top ten. Maybe you know them already and don't need to study them further. <laughs> but um, yeah, study, study them. You know, take a note. You know, one wonderful way to practice in the next two weeks is to set the intention to track for reactivity in the morning, maybe in the afternoon, two or three times a day. Could also do it before you have what you know will be a difficult meeting or a difficult encounter. If you're at a meeting or something, set the intention and do your mindfulness of reactivity. So we want to, we want to study it with mindfulness. Notice 
Notice what the reactivity feels like. Sometimes we can have that sense in the moment. You know, one, one other way of practicing, I don't know if I have this on here, um, but one way of, you know, one other way of practicing which is very helpful is set your radar, so to speak, for experiences of moderate or greater levels of pleasant or unpleasant. Be and bring mindfulness to experiences of pleasant or unpleasant. Notice if there are tendencies to go into reactivity. Be with a meal. Notice the pleasantness of the meal. Notice that there are tendencies to grasp. Something difficult happens, be with the unpleasant. Hang out with it. Notice that there are tendencies to go to blaming, judging, some way of pushing it away. That's, I think that's not actually on my list, but that's a very good practice. And maybe I'll just mention one or two others. Remember the teaching of the two arrows. When I work, I work one-on-one -on -one with people pretty regularly. The most common guidance I give is you've had something difficult happen. Watch out for the shooting of the second arrow. That goes a very long way. Something difficult, unpleasant happens. Track for the tendencies or the actuality of shooting the second arrow. Maybe I'll stop there. There are other ones that I, maybe I'll go into more next time. But let me finish. I'll finish with a, a quote from Rumi where he expresses something very much like the teaching of the two arrows, the teaching of dependent origination, the sense of dukkha as reactivity. Here it is. This is Rumi channeling the Buddha. Maybe. <laughs> okay. One dervish to another, what was your vision of God's presence? I haven't seen anything. But for the sake of conversation, I'll tell a story. <laughs> God's presence is there in front of me, a fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire, another towards the sweet flowing water. This is related to the pleasant and the unpleasant. Mm -hmm. No one knows which are blessed and which not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the lovely stream. A head goes under on the water surface and that head pokes out into the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. <laughs> Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice of the fire tells the truth saying, I am not fire, I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. You should wish to have a hundred thousand set of moth wings so you could burn them away one set a night. So thank you for your kind attention. And why don't we just sit for 30 seconds or a minute, see what's there for you. See if a, a sharing, a question, a comment is there but mostly just see what maybe was resonant for you, what felt helpful.
So let's open things up. And again, I hope I've uh, presented the sense that this is the center of the entire tradition. It can be expressed very simply. The teaching about the end of reactivity. It can be understood simply. It can be seen very easily in daily life. And the practice in daily life is very straightforward. Forget about all the hundred other teachings. This is at the center of it. You don't have to forget about them, but <laughs> but uh, this is this is the essence. So, any thoughts, questions, reflections, uh, Fran, please. Yes, uh, since the mention of two arrows, what I'm with is uh, recalling uh, one of two most painful experiences in my life, hmm. which was my son being killed in Iraq well. um, 18 years ago. Hmm. And um, in terms of the two arrows, there, you know, there was no denial about it. Like, you know, what can I do now? There was no anger against those who caused his death. Um, he was in the army. He was in a war. Of course, he could be killed. Like, mm -hmm. what yeah. Um, and an open-hearted recognition of all of the people, military and civilian, and their families and their friends, everybody who suffered uh, during that episode of history. And not just that episode, but going back into antiquity, um, what human beings do to each other. Um, and so what that left me with was just the pure pain. Yep. The bone-crushing pain, anguish, loss, mourning, and expressing that um, yep. as such. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Fran. And uh, Susan, did people hear uh, Fran? I think so. They haven't mentioned they're not hearing, so I, okay. think, I believe so. Yeah, maybe for the sake of recording, I'll just be very brief, uh, but it's... Uh, Fran is talking about the most uh, painful experience of, of his life, the death of his son in Iraq, and the sense that uh, where, what he, where he went with that was really simply to be, maybe this happened or was partly conscious choice, simply to be with the pain. And that this was in a way we could understand that in our models, right? That we, that there was not a going to blaming those who killed or apparently those who sent him there and so forth, but it was simply being with the pain. And I think we could see, we could imagine many other people who would, uh, with that first arrow, as it were, shoot a second arrow. Blame, you know, blame could go in many, many directions. And it, it also reminds me of something that I saw really clearly with um, with actually the death of my mother. That uh, it so happened that I was uh, scheduled. She died unexpectedly about seven years ago, and uh, I was scheduled to go on four weeks of personal retreat. It so happened that it occurred 
started six days after she died. And so it was, it was pretty much a grief retreat. And the basic guideline of the grief retreat was let things come through and see what gets in the way. Right? Let things come very similar to I think what you're describing, different little different words. And, you know, and, and really look out because what gets in the way would be different forms of reactivity. And so just being with the pain or with the, you know, the, the waves and just watching them for, for four weeks, I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else. And so it, it really is completely in line with, with the teaching, really. The teaching is, and, and so this is where our practice comes in because we learn how to be with the unpleasant when it's workable. You know, and one guideline I have on the handout is that it's really important to give a, almost like a numerical level from one to 10 to the level of intensity of what's unpleasant or painful. And be clear about what's workable and what's too much, right? And with what's workable, we can be with it. And we can, you know, so a core capacity we learn in our practice is how to be with the unpleasant and hang out with it. So take advantage of opportunities where the unpleasantness is, is kind of mild or workable, you know, a, a shoulder sensation that doesn't feel so pleasant. Hang out with this. This trains us not to shoot the second arrow. Do it as long as it's workable, not, you know, not pushing too much and so forth. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, uh, Michael. Yeah. Good to see you. Thank you, Don. Beautiful talk. I, I, years ago when we were covering this topic with Tony Bernhardt, he jokingly had a quick euphemism for this was, shit happens, number one. Two, don't make it worse. <laughs> so, That's right. And so when I say in my, for me, the bottom line of the spiritual practice is equanimity, trying to be in balance yeah. when things come up. In my criminal law practice, which I've done for 51 years, I use the word to my clients, you have a teacher. You, your teacher is your pain. The police arrested you. Yeah. You're in jail. Your son's in jail. Take this as a teaching to learn to use it for betterment in the future. Yeah. And that kind of takes it positively where they say, oh, I can learn from this instead of feeling sorry for myself and playing victim. Yeah, beautiful. You know that you know what from Tony. Shit happens. Don't make it worse. That's another another way of saying it. Yeah, and uh, and you know the the spirit of this is to take. Um, I didn't use this language. Right? I, sometimes I do in other settings. Take everything as learning. Right? Take everything as learning, even the unpleasant experiences, because the unpleasant experiences can teach us about deepening non-reactivity can teach us about compassion, right, in different ways. And so, again, I, I emphasize a lot that we want to have a sense of whether it's in the workable range. That's a big point, as it were. You know, sometimes things are overwhelming, and then the most important thing is to come back to balance. We can't be, you know, and probably there were moments for you, Fran, when it was like too much. I don't know. Maybe not. but. There could be moments like that, and then we need to, when something is difficult or painful, you know, at a physical level or emotional level, then we need sometimes to come back to balance. But we can work to transform non-reactivity when it's in the workable range, when we can be with what's painful in the workable range. Yeah. 
yeah, other thoughts, questions, and I totally encourage what we sometimes call half-baked questions or comments. <laughs> Don't have to be fully baked. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll ask a half-baked question. Okay, oh. and then and then Lori. Okay, I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I was uh, the grounding that I get when I come into these meetings like this, and then when you uh, uh, mentioned Kill Feinstein's name and stuff like that, because one, I'm one of his avid listeners every day of his, his talks, his, uh, yeah. meditation. But uh, you know, I I just because I've been on operating tables since '99, numerous, numerous times, and it's just, uh, but I have not. Somehow taken the thing and let it win the battle. I said, I'm going to go forward and produce something else. And this, I've taken the point, you know, most channels came at me. I could give up, I could stop. I could not turn, take care of this, this temple that I was given yeah. by some higher power. Yeah. And it's just been an unbelievable experience when I've changed it. It's like one of the teachings I just learned uh, a couple months ago is yeah, you're never too busy for. To miss the sunrise, so always should be out there looking at the sunrise. Yeah. And so I've done that. I put that in my life. And yeah. Go eat that in the morning. Pull the brain, bring back, dark outside. Sit in a chair and start to listen to meditate. And how the what this opens up with that sunshine through the trees and all that kind of stuff. It's neat, you'd say. So I said, oh, this has been just a learning experience for me. That is far enough for me. So yeah, beautiful. Right, and this, this would be, you know, as it were, a skillful way to go towards the pleasant, right? Mm -hmm. I remember, I wanted to be very clear that we don't interpret this teaching as uh, not going towards the pleasant and not avoiding the unpleasant. Mm -hmm. It's just that there are complexities there, are subtleties, right? But that would be an example of a skillful way of going towards the pleasant. Let me be with beauty, right? Mm -hmm. Let me be with what uh, nourishes me that I really like, right? That is pleasant, right? And the core criterion is whether we are uh, being habitual, automatic, and unconscious. That's where, again, the, the core practice of setting intentions is so central. <clears throat> yeah. And Lori, it might be the last one if we want to be on time. Yeah. Yeah, not, yeah. And everything we've heard here is emotionally too, not contracting. That's right. But opening and expanding and including and making a wider field to experience. And we can yeah. repeat that for our online. Okay, yeah, this is, tell me if I, if I got it exactly, uh, Lori, but this is that sense of, uh, of really uh, just opening to what's there opening to uh, the pleasant, opening to the unpleasant. Uh, and really, we build that capacity in our practice, right? And was there more? Yes. Yeah, and that, and that we, and this is the invitation to really uh, touch the pleasant, you know? I think, uh, I don't know if you were there, Sarah, but I remember in one of the groups I had at my house, we were going over probably a version of the teaching. We were talking about pleasant and unpleasant. And I said, you know, there's nothing 
about the pleasant that makes it a problem. We could sit here all evening and eat chocolate, and that wouldn't necessarily be a problem. And he said, let's, let's try it. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did the next evening. We had chocolate, and we, and we studied the pleasant. We studied moments of grasping and so forth. That it's very interesting to do, just to, uh, just to look for Look for those moments of pleasant. Notice if there are tendencies to grasp, and then one can go towards the pleasant, you know, more coming out of one's wisdom, like, like in, what is your name? Steve. Huh? Steve's, like Steve's example. And so that's really, really, really crucial. Um, okay, so how many are ready to uh, take this and continue to explore this in the next two weeks? Okay, and then we could... Uh, hopefully come back online and we can share our practice. You have the handout that gives uh, additional ways of practicing. I would say just take, take one or two or three. That's enough. I gave a lot of them, but you don't have to do all of them. I wouldn't even recommend that. But just work with one or two and it'll, it'll really demand intentionality in terms of remembering to look for this. You can look for it in your formal meditation, look for moments of reactivity. Could be just looking for moments of pleasant and unpleasant during the day and noticing if there are tendencies to reactivity. So I'll put this talk on the web. It'll be available. You can listen to it again if you'd like. I'll put it, I'll put it under my name, uh, linked with Benicia Sangha. And you can uh, just go under my name on the website Dharma Seed. Uh, and should be able to find it. I'll try to do that tonight so it's available. And then just work with this practice and we'll compare notes. I'll say, I'll probably briefly summarize the core teachings and then go more into detail about how to practice next time. Okay? Thank so, you, Donald. Thank thank you, Donald. Thank yeah. you so much. And so, yeah. Thank you, Donald. I just want to thank Donald again so much for coming here and giving us our teachings. And we'll see you in two weeks uh, on video. Yeah. Baskets are online. We can help use your help to pick up the chairs, and uh, we'll see you all in two weeks. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, and may, may we offer the benefits of our time together for to all beings, which includes us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.